So, Matt, I need to tell you about... Aside from the tattoos, the only time I ever got a body modification. Okay, is this gonna be your, um... Your story? No, and I'm gonna have to bleep that out. <laughs> uh, no, it was the time when I went... The only body modification I've ever gotten, aside from that, which uh, no one will actually know what you said, uh, I went to get my ear... <laughs> I went to get my earlobe pierced and nearly cried from the pain. Did you? Yeah, you know, like, I can stick tattoos, but just, like, you know, the, those weird fleshy bits, nah, not, not for me. I am on the fence. I really want to get my nose pierced, but I just need to, like, take the jump and do it. See, the thing is that I don't want to get a stud because I don't want to have to go through the process of trying to heal it. So I'm trying to figure out, I was like, hmm... Can they just put a loop in? Will they put a loop in? Is it just gonna like make my nose go septic and it's my nose is gonna swell and get even bigger than it already is? So you know, all the cool kids have septic nose piercings, Tom. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Every, all the cool kids have big jeans, mid parts, and septic nose piercings. But yeah. uh, if, if you want to support uh, me getting a nose piercing, make sure to check out the Patreon where you can hear bonus episodes and episodes like this early before anyone else. Um, will, the, will, but, the pa- will the Patreon patrons hear what I asked you in, that you've just beeped out? No, no, <laughs> no one, no one needs to know that. Um, but yeah, we we have like a really, really interesting topic today because. I want to. I want to focus with our guests, who we'll introduce in a second, uh, on on a tattoo themes topic. But we'll definitely, I'm sure, at the introduction, stray into some wider stuff, and then we'll we'll have him back to talk more um, more about all the amazing things that he does. This is the man, by the way. Before I give him his full introduction, the man, this is the, man, the myth, the legend. Yeah, this is the man, Tom, who um, is is in my opinion single handedly responsible for um uh the the modern fashion for body uh, for navel piercings the man the myth the legend the queen the queen of this podcast and the queen of the world mr paul have, King. You, ever, have you ever seen tom the aerosmith video for um uh, for crying yeah delicious silverstone that's paul in that video oh wow I, yeah. I, I I am in the presence of celebrity. I thought you were famous, Matt. Paul, has I anyone am. ever tried to steal your identity? <laughs> um, uh, actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, so we're now, like, what, up to three people who featured on this show, including you, Matt, who's had their identity, like, impersonated? Yeah. <laughs> So this is this it also this is uh my friend uh the uh legend mentor genius um Paul King who is uh treasurer at the Association of Professional Piercers he is the um head honcho at the Body Piercing Archive he is um an amazing uh, body piercer in his own right and um, has been involved with like jewellery manufacture um, for a very long time. Uh, he's published books, including an amazing book on Mr. Sebastian um, recently. He's created exhibitions on piercing and body modern tattoo history. Um, and he's just an all-round, like, just excellent human being. Um, so, yeah, it's really nice to have you on the on the podcast, Paul. 
Matt, can I just take you everywhere with me and you can be like the <laughs> I'll be your hype man. Just <laughs> it's I like those, you know, the, the monkey in the box, you wind it up and it pops out and starts clapping symbols. <laughs> also, I should probably introduce the show as well. Uh you're very welcome to Beneath the Skin, the show about the history of everything told through the history of tattooing. I'm one of your hosts, Thomas Amani, and I'm joined by my esteemed co-host, Dr. Matt Lauder. Anyway, Hello. I always forget to do it and then have to do it like five minutes in. So Paul, you're very you're very welcome to the show. <laughs> <laughs> this is all i can already tell this is going to be extremely chaotic and a pain in the ass to edit but we roll anyway it's always a shit show and that and i get together <laughs> last time last time i saw you paul um i was pretending to be you um with oh sh- at short at short notice triggered <laughs> i'm triggered <laughs> <laughs> you saved my ass. Uh, our conference, our uh, the Association of Professional Piercers conference last year, of which I'm one of the organizers, and Matt was our esteemed special guest that came over to give a talk. Uh, ended up uh, having to carry the entire show because I got COVID, could not do any of the docent tours for the exhibit, could not even teach my own class. So uh, Matt jumped in with a PowerPoint he'd never seen before, <laughs> just faked it. He did a brilliant and job. And it, ter- so it turned out that all. It turned out that I was also probably positive with covid because i tested positive when i was home i was negative on the day but i was also sick i did a i did a jazz freestyle improvisation of paul king oh my god yeah but that, look, that I, did i miss anything in in the introduction paul is there anything that you want to tell our audience about yourself no, that, um that was plenty of adjectives <laughs> thank you <laughs> So what I, as as Tom said, like I think there's a million things we could talk about, and I, I do want to talk to you about piercing more specifically. But really, what I wanted to get you on today to talk about to narrow it down, because if we're not careful, we talk for hours. Do you remember, like Tom, for example, I, I was at an event in in at Germany, and I saw Paul, and I literally bumped into him. We started chatting, and we didn't move for about four hours. <laughs> we just sat. That sounds that sounds about right. That's from my experience socializing with Matt. That sounds just about right. Yeah, um, but for, for for sort of narrow purposes, and I know it's it's uppermost in your mind at the moment, and it's uppermost in my mind too. Um, is the story of of Rudy Inhelder, who who is this figure who sort of bestrides tattooing and piercing histories, is such a really interesting and um, I think you're discovering Paul even more important figure than we we realized so do you want to do you want to tell us about rudy and what you're doing and i'll, I'll tell you what i know <laughs> that's what i can <laughs> do so far i can tell you what i know uh rudy and helder uh was born in switzerland uh he appears to come from at least a middle class upbringing he was very well educated uh, became a physicist and did things with lighting. He 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 always had uh, both technical and uh, uh, high end jobs. That would mean that he would fly. You know, he he lived for a time in New York City, and then he would live in in Munich. So yeah, and then in London. So we had. Uh, and he was he born had, like l- late nineteen thirties, was he? Early nineteen forties. Nineteen twenty nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he was born in 1929. Uh, so 
Yeah, I think it, for what it's worth, I I'm not going to give you a linear layout. Um, I'd rather talk a little bit about how I discovered him and then how he unfolds. So I had known about Rudy and Helder. Uh, I used to, I, I was trained and I used to work for a company called Gauntlet. They were the first piercing shop in the Western world. And Rudy Enhelder was a sometime contributor to uh, a magazine that Gauntlet put out called PFIQ. And so I, I had this vague knowledge of his name. And also there are some fairly within nerdy circles of piercing and tattooing, there's some iconic images of Rudy and Helder with Elizabeth Weinzerl, who's considered like the grandmother of tattooing enthusiasts, and Mr. Sebastian and Jim Ward in 1978 on a trip that Jim Ward and Doug Malloy and Sailor Sid made, <clears throat> excuse me, to Europe to go to the second tattoo convention there uh, in Amsterdam. Uh, but also to meet Mr. Sebastian and Tattoo Sam. So it was, it was really important. Lots of name dropping uh, because that's what kind of trip it was, was a, an extremely important, well-connected trip. So Rudy Inhelder's in pictures there. And uh, whenever Jim Ward would talk about this trip, his name would come up. It turns out that was the one and only time that Jim Ward and Rudy Inhelder actually ever met in person. They had very little contact. So, um, but Rudy's name would pop up. Like if you, if you're nerdy at all and you're reading any of the old, uh, newsletters and magazines that are put out, uh, by the tattoo associations, Rudy's name would pop up. But the thing is, he was not a tattoo artist. He was just a diehard enthusiast, but a man of means and a polyglot and very well connected. So are we doing all right? Do you have any questions so far? Yeah, well, I so I, I should probably say like my intro story to him, which was as with many of my tattoo history stories, like via Lal Hardy, who mm. um, someone ring the Lal Hardy bell, knock it off on your Hardy bingo bell. card. There should be that man is epic. Yes, there should be a Lal yeah. Hardy. So, so when I was start, you know, I I started to get tattooed at Lal's studio in like two thousand three, and. Very shortly, you know, after then, in the sort of, you know, going in there every, you know, few months at the time to get tattooed by Martin Clark, who worked there at the time, like Rudy's name would come up, or this guy called Rudy Inhelder. And I, I knew about him really only as this kind of collector, this guy who'd been around tattooing for a very long time. And he'd been tattooed by a lot of very famous tattoo artists. Um, uh, and 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 he was known uh, around the UK scene as this kind of yeah this collector really a guy who would have had a great collection of material because he'd sort of been around the scene for so long. And I, I, at the time, um, I I didn't know much more than that. But he he as Paul was saying, like he's one of these names that the more you get into tattoo history, and particularly if you're looking at the connections and really such as we'll go into, I'm sure that's like, an interesting figure because he is one of these connection points between European, British, and American tattooing. Um, the more the more you sort of stumble across his name, and you'd, certainly if you've seen photographs um, of of the tattoo scene from the like, from the seventies in particular and eighties, you will have seen pictures of Rudy, even if you didn't know it was him, because he's got some iconic tattoos on him by some really famous artists. So that so that was kind of my introduction to him as well, Paul. Like I I'd 
I didn't know. I mean, again, I also knew that he was a, a gay man. Um, so Lau told me that and that he had a boyfriend and, you know, he lived in Switzerland. And that that was basically what I knew about him um, uh, until, you know, until you and I were talking in a lot more detail uh, about what we both knew when we started chatting last year. But yeah, I think so that 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 is a good indication ever is like you know both you and i you're a bit older than me paul sorry to say that um but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but but both of us both of us with our kind of nerderies encountered rudy as this present but peripheral figure right because he's not as you said he's yeah. not a tattoo artist he's a yeah. he's a he's a guy that gets tattooed for once matt gets to call someone old and it's not me calling him old <laughs> <laughs> so he was identified like you know in in Jim Jim Ward was the founder of the Gauntlet and in Jim World's Jim Ward's worldview, Inhelder was an early uh, enthusiast in piercing and tattooing. So that that puts him in this special circle of gay men that were heavily pierced, heavily tattooed from at least the seventies. But keep in mind. Uh, that's, you know, when Jim really enters into the piercing world. And while for many of us, like, oh, wow, 1970s is so long ago. It's like, uh-uh-uh, we got to wind that clock back. We got to step back further because that's Inhelder predates Jim Ward's uh, uh, exposure or entry into the world of piercing. So yeah. do you want to hear a little bit more about Inhelder? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Keep this. I think so. Everyone, has, yeah, yeah. So everyone kind of you know has their 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 origin story. And for Rudy, he would tell a few times in interviews that he first read the book uh, "Pierced Hearts and True Love" in 1954. Uh, this book was published by or written by Hans Ebenston. Forgive me if I mispronounce the last name. And Hans had written the book in 1953. So this, like, soon after, it's kind of an iconic book for tattoo nerds out there. Uh, what a lot of people don't know is Hans was also a gay man. And Hans went on to, like, he, like all of these people have their own stories. It's wild. Hans went on to uh, start the first gay travel group for men. Uh, in the 70s, and he pierced other books, but this was the only tattoo book he ever published. And he, it was well, just because he, said he had an he, interest He in said it. he didn't like tattoos. On the, I've just gone and pulled my coffee off the shelf. Um, in literally, literally the introduction, I'll, there's a quote in here where he says, I don't really like getting, I don't really like tattoos, but I was sort of interested in, I was interested in them. It's so wild and Matt, jump in when when you want to, when you find the quote. It's so wild that, you know, Hans not really having an interest in tattooing writes this book and that Rudy Inhelder having this special quality that I've identified in a lot of the pioneers where they don't just have an interest, they have an interest and they have motivation and they take action and they figure it out. So Inhelder writes to Hans and it's like, this tattooing, this is incredible. Uh, I want to know more about tattooing, you know, and I'm sure a very Swiss way. And, and Hans is like, well, you know, you should like talk to the English. You should um, maybe talk to this guy, Rich Mingens. And Hans introduces by, you know, correspondence, 
uh, in Helder to Rich Mangans. And the yeah, following I'm year, in 1955, Inhelder goes over to what was basically the first London tattoo convention. Yeah. And so, yeah, Mingins is cited in the book as like the technical consultant. Um, this is the quote. Hans Ebertson is not himself a tattoo fan. Despite the thoroughness of his researches, he's remained untattooed except for a small emblem on his arm just to see whether it would hurt or not. It didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so that, yeah, so that, that 1955 like London Tattoo Club is where again um tom would have seen those photos at when we went to cardiff to see the jesse collection the photos of jesse with rich mingins and al shafley from um sandusky ohio and les goose and cash cooper that is that 1955 london tattoo club meeting it's where jesse came runner-up as champion tattooer of all england um and Maybe it's worth just as a, we'll probably do have to do a whole episode on the London Tattoo Club at some point. But just as an aside, like that's a group of people who are basically an offshoot of the Bristol Tattoo Club. So Les is Les is Les Les had started the the Bristol Club a few years earlier. He was this great kind of networker, um, and his contacts in London through Rich Mingins and Rich Mingins' his brother Alf in particular. Um, big, uh, big, with Cash, uh, another guy called Zeke Owens as well, became a bit of a nexus of organising of tattooing in London. And yeah, I mean, they wouldn't they wouldn't call them conventions, but they just sort of met up in pubs and had tattoo competitions and drank pints of pints of bitter. Lots of men, but there were some women around as well. And um, imagine how yeah. those pubs smelled at that at that time, <laughs> like carpet that had probably about hundred years of ale spilled on it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. This is this is the thing that uh, I always talk about with people when they talk about like, oh, it'd be so cool to live in this decade or that decade. And I was like, you realize how bad everything smelled? It's like every <laughs> single room smelled like plastic upholstery and cigarettes. And I smoke, and I would find that disgusting. Yeah. So Inhelder, like in one year, he reads this book. He writes to the author. He gets correspondence introduction. And he's in he's in London for this get together, and he's meeting the creme de la creme of European, at, at least UK, and some American tattoo artists. Like he's immediately in the middle of it, and having that scientific type of mind that he does, he's documenting all of it. He's photographing all of it. Like, yeah, it's just incredible. Once you start really breaking it down. And one of the things that he walks away from, and I'm going to take a little liberty here because I he's not around for me to ask him, is I think he felt that sense of community that you can in the tattoo world that was really coming together at this time. And he loved it. It was passionate for him, like having uh, the camaraderie and the common interests and the art form. And let's be honest, he was a gay man. So there was also some sexuality mixed in there as well. So it, it, it really had the whole thing for him. Yeah. And I, I was going to say as well, particularly, I suppose at that time, you know, queerness wasn't an overly visible thing and like having a sense of belonging to whatever community that would accept you and understand that like, here is a load of people who live a little bit differently than everyone else and it's kind of a regardless of how um brash some of the people would have been that like they were welcoming to people who were different and and maybe a little bit misunderstood i think it's also a story that probably a lot of people listening and certainly i can um 
resonate with, right? Because he, so he was like 25. He didn't have any tattoos at the time, but he read this book and was like, oh, holy shit. Like, that's, that's what I want to do and get into. And, you know, just like, like me for real. Yeah, well, for you know, for me, for 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 myself, when I was like, you know, I was probably ten years younger than, or fifteen years younger than he was at the time. I was probably like twelve or thirteen, but I was also then seeing magazines and getting on the early internet when I was about fifteen, and the same thing of like, oh my god, like these are, these are my people, and I think like that's a very, um, you know, it's a very kind of understandable thing for lots of people in this community. I think you know. Yeah. And, you know, talking a little bit to the queer or gay uh, perspective, it's fascinating, like, you know, the tattoo community has many reputations. One of them is not being very accepting of homosexuality, especially at this time period. But that's certainly not entirely true. There was a lot of... uh, I don't want to say even don't ask, don't tell. There was a lot of, uh, we don't need to necessarily talk about this. Everyone knows what's up and sort of like a, a passive ex- acceptance, uh, for sure. People knew that he was gay. It wasn't an issue. Uh, he was accepted on the merit of his knowledge and his enthusiasm and his respect, mutual respect. A very good metaphor that someone once told me is it's called being in the closet, but there's no doors on the wardrobe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can get on board with that. So uh, in 1957, work takes Rudy to New York and he gets to New York and you had already mentioned Al Sheffley. And although Al had like tried to, you know, he had, he had brought together some tattoo artists for what's considered like the first get together. Uh, but there wasn't an organization and Rudy really missed that. He missed this, like the Bristol tattoo club. He missed these organizations that were starting to form. And he, and, uh, and this is, this is the unfortunate part. I don't know who his friends were for sure. One of them was Paul McNaughton. Cause he's like the president of this newfound club. Uh, for sure. Paul was one, but I don't know who the other friends were, uh, but he and some friends, uh, decided, well, let's well, let's reproduce this. Let's start a club over here in the U.S. And they were having these conversations in 1963. And then in January of 1964, they launched the Tattoo Club of America. Now, on paper, it was, you know, a club that lasted two years, <laughs> 1964 <laughs> to 1966. Uh, when you look at what little correspondence is available, everyone's hating on Rudy. He's a total flake. He's he's terrible at correspondence. The newsletters are always late. People are getting pissed off and questioning if they should continue their membership. So there's a lot of um, unhappiness within the group, uh, just as far as uh, organizational. Uh, just issue. sounds like a, my WhatsApps with Matt. Not right, Matt. <laughs> Totally. How, d- totally. how dare you? How dare you? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so it's only around for two years. Uh, I I know of nine issues, nine known issues of the newsletter. I believe that there are up to thirteen. Here's the big problem: if anyone out there has those issues, um, even the tattoo archive doesn't have a complete set of the newsletters. Like, they are scarce. So. Uh, if you've got them, please come forward. Let Matt know. Uh, we just need digital copies. It's just crucial we get that information. Um, 
because even though it was a very short-lived organization, uh, it had tremendous ripples as far as connections. This, this organization for me was all about the connections. Yeah. And, and it's amazing, like, so I, I, um, Paul included um, an early membership list in the exhibition that he did in Vegas, and I hadn't seen that before until Paul showed it to me. And, like, just I'll give you some names, Tom, from that, um, from that early hit list. Me, hit right? me with them. So the first name on the list is Ron Ackers, right, who we also talked about in a couple of weeks when we um, interviewed um, Julia about how he was also – you know, one of the first foreign tattooers to work in Spain. And he was also famous van owner, Ron famous Ackers. Van over. Really, really interesting early correspondent of Ed Hardy's. Like, so Ron Ackers is in there. Um, we have also got um, Eddie Funk. We have got um, Chris, uh, Cindy Ray. We have got, um, uh, uh, God, I'm just reading Jeff the list Baker. here. Just Jeff Baker, Rich Mingins. Um, like, just Herb, uh, yeah, all of these, like, all of these people that go on to be, you know, completely key figures. Albert, Albert Brecker, who's a really important German tattooer. Um, all of these really, really important oh, and interesting to, people. To correct that, uh, although Albrecht Becker did tattoos, uh, he's very important historically yeah. as an artist and piercing and tattooing yeah. pioneer. But he was yeah. not a professional tattoo artist. Thank you. That's a good point. Thank you for that clarification. Um, yeah, he, he published in books, didn't he? Yeah. But yeah. so here's like to really nerd out. So uh, you're looking at a, a directory, which when you start to dive into the newsletters, there's inference that this is not the first and there's also inference that there was another one that was going to be coming after this. So, like I said, there's big holes in the information that we have. And if you start to read through the newsletters, then you can add to that directory names like Phil Sparrow, uh, Lone Wolf, Les Scoose, Al Sheffley, like it just Paul Rogers, Huck Spalding. It's literally all Tom Owen, like almost Everyone that was anyone was joining this club. Cliff Raven, uh, yeah. Doc Forbes, <laughs> uh, Dietz, and, Rudy, like, and Rudy's got photos with all of them. <laughs> so one of the things that makes this so spe like spectacularly interesting was the structure. And this is where I really nerd out. So Rudy had a questionnaire. And in the questionnaire, he asks what could be on the surface, a lot of mundane questions. Like, do you like tattoos? Obviously you do. You're like, how many tattoos do you have? Where are these tattoos? Are you interested in uh, exchanging correspondence? Are you interested in buying photographs? Are you interested in meeting other people? By the way, do you like uh, images of tattooed women? Yes or no? Uh, <laughs> and then like at the very, very bottom was, do you have piercings? Yes or no? That was like the last, like you could almost like miss it. It's literally at the very bottom. The thing is when you start to take these questions and look at them schematically, if I have someone that's like super into tattooing, but is identifying as not married and isn't into uh, images of <laughs> tattooed women, 
you can start to infer that this person might have same-sex attraction, especially as you start corresponding. So it was like, and this is how you had to navigate. Like, keep in mind, in many places, like, homosexuality was illegal at this time. So Paul McNaughton, who's the president of the Tattoo Club of America and another enthusiast, and Rudy Enhelder were both gay men. So they were trying to navigate, like, how do we do both? How do we meet other gay men that have interests and promote tattoo history uh, and, and tattoo culture? And it's really, really mad, right, to, to think that the tattoo world was so... And we'll get to the schisms that come after this in a minute, but like, it's really interesting to realize that at this time, right? I mean, other members, again, people that we've mentioned on the podcast, right? Sailor Jerry was a member, Bert Grimm was a member, Pinky Young was a member, Lyle Tuttle was a member. Like, all these people that some of them do, like Lyle and Sailor Jerry, we talked about uh, with uh, Danielle didn't like each other but they're in the same club together <laughs> and you've got this club which encompasses you know the conservative old school artists like Sailor Jerry um you've got kind of well respected figures globally like Rich Mingins and Les Scoos and then you've got a group of customers and artists who were a bit weirder and a bit stranger and a bit, a bit queerer in lots of ways. And I think like, it's so interesting to me again, Paul and I spent a lot of time talking about this when we were in Vegas together, like how this period of tattoo history, right. Coming out of what I called in my own exhibition, the dark days for tattooing, like the post-war period where Lescu's in particular in, in England is advocating for tattooing in a way that, you know, is trying to keep it alive in the face of, in the face of a lot of public opprobrium. Um, and, you know, the first time the word, ta- the phrase tattoo renaissance gets coined is not about Ed Hardy in the 70s, but it's about Les Goose in the 50s. But at that time, when tattooing is, the industry is fragile and the people that are into it are like into it, they're really into it. That group is small enough to encompass the conservative and the radical, the queer and the straight, the out and the the, the the closeted, the underground and the mainstream, as as far as that term might apply. And I think that to me is such, this this group of people which pivots around Rudy um is such a fascinating illustration of what's happening in tattooing, you know, because you've got basically Europe, America, Britain, little bit of Australia, you've got some of those artists like Pinky who are, you know, from Hong Kong but connected to the European scenes. And that's it, right? That's that's what you've got going on. So I'm going to take a guess here, and this is a guess, that at its height, there were probably about 300 members. And I'm doing that based on looking at the numbering system and... and how that numbering system changed, by the way, in 1966, right before the um, the club died, they restructured all the numbering system, which uh, if you're doing investigation, keep that in mind when you come across uh, <laughs> club, uh, they changed. I've been yeah, able the, to... The highest, this- the highest number on this list is Burt Grimm, at who's member 300. Right. And then the, the nomenclature shifts to where the number would identify... Were you American, not American, an enthusiast, uh, or a professional tattoo artist? So, like in sixty in in sixty six, they changed all that. So, just by looking at the number, you could identify someone. Um, so, of the 
I'm guessing again, about 300 members. I've been able to identify 138. Now, of those 138, 74 were professional tattooers. That's only 54%. (laughs) The other 64, uh, which is 46%, were enthusiasts or amateur tattoo artists. So you you really just have this this mixture. Um, And get this, this is what was shocking to me. Like, Matt saw this walking through the exhibit that we did. Like I had some red circles around people that were identified as piercing pioneers. And I, I want to say at that time, there might have been 10. I'm up to 35 people that have been identified as piercing pioneers out of that 138. That's, that's a hefty percentage. Hefty. Nobody tell Glenn Danzig. Yeah, totally. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, the, the way that, you know, so I had this brief introduction to Rudy and Helder, but it was after, uh, Fakir Mushafar, uh, passed member, away. Member uh, 97? <laughs> yes. Which is a very low number, which means he was a very early member. Uh, after Roland, and he went, he was going by Roland Loomis. It wasn't until the late 70s that uh, Fakir Mushafar became his dominant name. Uh, but when when Roland died in 2018, I, I was already working with him actually before he died and starting to go through his collection, which then continues to this day. And I started coming across these correspondences and you can break down Fakir Mushafar's correspondences, you know, really, you know, personal stuff, a few things in the late fifties when he was doing a corset country uh, company, but then it's the sixties all of a sudden like, wow, you're like meeting people all over the world that are into piercing. And I hadn't made the connection yet. And it, it turns out again, if I was going to do a rough percentage of these early correspondence, it turned out that probably 80, 90% of them were through the tattoo club of America. And I started reading references to TCA numbers, to, you know, the tattoo club and, and, and it just like, what is going on here? And so then I found, uh, within, uh, Fakir's papers, I found some issues, uh, the tattoo club of America. And of course, all roads lead back to Rudy and Helder. And so what he would do with that questionnaire, you know, you, one of the things in the questionnaire, that's really great is it's like, uh, give me three friends that are, that might be interested in this and tell me your three favorite tattoo artists. And then he would use those addresses to further spread the questionnaires and to recruit members. But everything went back to Rudy, everything. So like every, anytime someone filled something out, it would go back to Rudy and Rudy was requesting photographs and he would have all these letters. So anyone that is a member, all those names that we just mentioned, without exception, would have corresponded with Rudy at least once. And as I'm starting to figure this out, I'm like, you know, and then also, of course, reading articles where he's talking about his archive, I'm like screaming at Matt. I'm like, Matt, Matt, we have to find this archive. Okay, we'll save that story for, we'll save that story for the end of the podcast, shall we? Okay, okay. Yeah, you got it. But, uh, but maybe like, maybe this is like a little bit of a dumb question, but for someone who's like more familiar with tattooing than piercing, like obviously we see like a whole like range of 
every type of piercing you can probably get. Every week I see, like, a new type of piercing on TikTok, and I'm like, oh, that seems cool. I'll, I won't get part of my ear cut out to get, like, things put there. But, like, what, what were people getting at this time? You know, obviously Rudy probably has, like, evidence of everything. It's not just Prince Albert's and septum piercings. Well, it, it's funny that you say it's not just... <laughs> <laughs> Like, it's not just, I mean, people aren't just getting face tattoos and hand tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> once again, uh, once again, uh, the listeners will accuse me of being reductive, but it's for the sake of you. It's for the sake of simplicity. Let's try to, it's, it's really hard when, when we're looking at history to put ourselves in another place in time. So mm-hmm. I'm going to try and do this. Uh, one of the things that I research is a publication called London Life. And, you know, I'll be reading letters from correspondents in there, and you'll have someone that today we would identify as transgender. They had different terms then, but we'll stick to the transgender. You'll have someone that is expressing, like, there is nothing that I would love more than to be able to, you know, wear, you know, my dresses in public. I can do it sometimes. I want to do it more. But you know what I would really love, what I'm really missing that would really just complete me would be if I could have pierced ears. There's nothing I would love, but I can't do that. So I guess I'll pierce my nipples. Yeah. And this is, this is in the, this is in the, in the fifties, Tom, and even earlier, actually thirties, thirties, forties, fifties. Yeah. So like something like, you know, uh, a Prince Albert or like what you don't understand yet. And hopefully I'll get you there is a man, someone identified or assigned male at birth, having their ears pierced was a revolutionary act that could get you killed. Even in the 80s, having both my ears pierced, I would have beer bottles thrown at me. So, like... You sure that was because of your piercings, Paul? (laughs) Maybe the blue hair. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't your your bad attitude. Oh my god! Yeah, I, I, I did have a bad <laughs> sorry. I, I shouldn't. I shouldn't make a joke about historical homophobia, but no, no, no. It's uh, it was it was definitely uh, people talking. Uh, it, th- there were certain words that would be hurled at me when they would see the the ears pierced. It was definitely associated with that. I really want to underscore the power of you know, like it, it's 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 not. It might be more easier for someone in the audience to understand, like, if you're of a certain age, like a neck or a hand tattoo. Oh, my God, that that was revolutionary. That was wild. That was like a job stopper. Like, I, I hope you're prepared to be homeless. You know, like you wouldn't be able to get an apartment like it would so interfere with your life once upon a time. And it was the same just for an earlobe piercing. So when somebody has a septum or ear cartilage or nipplers. Like this was just science fiction to like to try and wrap your head around. I mean, it's uh, it, it, science fiction is the right way to put it because Paul uh, and to a lesser extent me spend a lot of time looking for it, for evidence of early piercing, and a lot of what we're finding is basically people imagining the kind of piercings they'd like to get if it were possible. Yeah, yeah. you know. So I mean, like. Again, maybe some in the audience can relate back to in the very early 90s um, uh, and for a few, few in the late 80s, if you had stretched ears, people would stop you in a grocery store and have to process this with you. Like, is that a hole? Does that really go all the way through? So like, and we just, it's it's what we call our matter of facts now. It's just a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. So 
I know I've kind of beleaguered the point, but I really want to stress like, oh, no, no, no. If you had a piercing moment, that was a very big deal. Even an earlobe was a very big deal. A lot of, so just as a, um, we're already 42 minutes into the recording. This is what happened in Vegas. We were supposed, me and Paul were supposed to be doing at like back to back hour long talks each. And we did a joint one that was about four hours long. Part two, part, part two, two, the crowd one, part two. Well, sure. so um, what's interesting again about this period in terms of tattooing, and, and we can talk about Rich Mingins again here. Um, and, and, and Mr. Sebastian too, but lots of these photos um, that we have, some of which would have been traded through the Tattoo Club of America, some of which were traded through the Bristol Tattoo Club, particularly by Les Scuse's brother Bill, um, who was a tattooer in Aldershot. Um, there was this kind of network, you know, trading of photography. The famous um, one also in the US was Cobol, Bernard Cobol. And um, a lot of those these guys... Um, in in these tattoo photos, happen to have nipple piercings, and again, Paul and I spent a lot of time talking about this. What's super interesting about that is that no one ever mentions it or talks about it or says who does them or where they got them done. Um, no. Nope. Uh, and 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 we've you know Paul Paul and I have and Paul more than more than me have have started to backfill some of that information. But what was kind of amazing is how it was. It was there in that scene, um, but it wasn't really talked about, even though, as Paul was saying, it's freaking wild. Um, and there are, you know, there are, again, we should do a whole separate episode about the history of piercing, but it's interesting that, um, you know, bring it back to Rudy, that that he was able to find these people that even had more stuff going on than maybe even the people who were involved in the seen realized right this this moment in the 50s is 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 nascent for the tattoo industry but it's also really nascent for the body piercing industry in a way that i think the people involved didn't even have the language to realize at the time i think you're touching on something really interesting there like and you know you use the word tattoo industry and then you paralleled it with you know nascent for the piercing industry there was no piercing industry. Exactly. And I think that that's why it wasn't talked about. So there was no profession, a professional piercer. It wasn't until really like the 50s, 60s that occasionally you would find a tattoo artist and more so in Europe that would offer ear piercing services really from like the 60s, 70s. Uh, but it wasn't there wasn't an identity and therefore there wasn't an industry. And therefore, again, like much less talking about these things and we're able to call the information just by going through the correspondence. And, you know, someone writes a letter uh, in the sixties going, yeah, you know, Paul McNaughton passed through uh, Germany, met with Hoffman and Hoffman pierced his nipples. And it's just like a throwaway sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Hoffman never identified as a body piercer, but we have in writing and a diagram of what the instrument looked like and a description of gold rings being inserted in the nipples. That's a body piercer, folks. Every time, every time Paul and I find it, and these are very rare and sparse, but every time we come across them, we send each other WhatsApps going, look, we found another one. Oh my God. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, totally. 
So keep in mind, so all roads lead back to Rudy and Helder. He's getting all this correspondence. He's saving all the photographs that he's asked people to send him. Um, he's, got, he's got the letters. And he then turns around and he starts playing matchmaker. Now, for sure, some of the people that were early members were people that he had already found through the the gay circles. You know, he, he already found these people, a few, with common interests. But he's able to, like, exponentially grow those circles and start introducing people to each other. Well, bear, bear in and, mind, this is, this is New York in the run-up to Stonewall, right? So this is... This is also the historical context of a, a an increasingly visible, increasingly kind of confident in many ways, game movement of gay men and 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 trans women. Largely, there were some butch lesbians around on the scene as well. But um, you know it, that moment in New York's really pivotal for gay history for a reason. And again, sort of by luck of history, Rudy's in the middle of it. And I I don't think. I, I certainly don't know. Maybe Paul does. If there's any links between Rudy and the TCA to more, you know, more visible kind of um, Stonewall era gay rights movements, I haven't come across any. No, this, but it's certainly this was still very underground. Yeah, but it's certainly something in the air in New York at the time for for queer organizing and for kind of subculture organizing as well, right? Don't forget, it's the period of Andy Warhol's Factory and of Basquiat and of like you know the the Vietnam anti Vietnam War protests and the aftermath of the Korean War and like it's this interesting moment in American and global history where youth subculture and countercultures of various kinds are coming together and disagreeing and fomenting disputes and being very creative. It's a really interesting time and place for him to be part of. I think some of this, and forgive me, but this is what we do. I think some of this is right before that. Mm. Like it's right before the, exactly. like, it's, it's right before that tipping point um, yeah. into like the chaos of the late sixties and early seventies. So, you know, so Rudy's playing matchmaker and he's like, Hey, uh, Roland Loomis, I think you should talk to this guy, Albert Becker over in Germany. There is no way that they would have ever come in contact with each other, but Rudy is able to implement these. And then what then happens is these people, like they start to feel each other out and you can see it in the correspondence. Like, um, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to offend you, but, uh, do you, would you like to see some photos of my heavily tattooed penis? And so that might be the next, you know, and then before you know it, they're talking about like same sex encounters, but it's, it's all done really courteous and it's done in this methodical way of, uh, I don't know. There's a real polite social etiquette when you read these letters. It's quite, it's quite matter of fact as well. Cause again, a lot, of, a lot of them talk about technique, a lot of the letters have like sketches in them of how things are done because like, you know, there's no internet or even magazine culture really. So these guys, and it is, it is all guys really. I mean, there's a couple of women, a few women in the club, but like they are, they're, they're a lot of them are the, are the kind of club joining type as well. Right. Sort of this kind of, yeah. um, uh, you know, I often think that, um, and I've, I've, I'm really lucky. I, I found a photo of Rudy with, um, uh, with Phil Sparrow, with with Samuel Stewart, because they're, I think they're similar kind of guys where they're they're collecting and they're networking. And, but it's also, yeah, it's also information sharing. It's also kind of being really interested, researching stuff because they've got that kind of academic 
kind of mind. What? Um, and as well, I was going to say, like, the, like this sort of stuff is, like, super important for history because without people, you know, sharing these letters and, like, sending each other pictures, we wouldn't know that this stuff exists right now because, like, no one would have seen it and no one would have, like, kept it in a little lockbox in, you know, a chest of drawers. Well, the thing is, they did when they were live. These things were precious. Mm -hmm. uh, they were so valued and they would be kept for decades. The problem always was like, I, I don't think I've seen a story yet. I'm sure they exist, but I haven't seen a story yet where, oh, yeah, I got tired of everything. And so I threw it away. <laughs> <laughs> it's always. And then they died and they hadn't made plans for it. And the family gets their hands on it and freaks out, gets rid of it, burns it, destroys it over and over and over again, particularly with the piercing history over and over and over again, it gets destroyed. But what Matt touched on is absolutely true. Like what we see in the 60s, and I'm, I'm doing a, a chapter for Oxford University Press right now on this, is showing that. The 1970s even did not just happen. You know, we think of the gauntlet as being the starting point for piercing. I'm like, no, 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 folks. Like they were working out how do we enlarge piercings, uh, better techniques for uh, piercing. All of that stuff was getting worked on in, in the 60s between and showing direct connection to then what would happen in the 70s. Yeah. yeah. Rudy and Helder. Yeah. And... <laughs> And I think um, the other thing about Rudy, and this is again, I think, true of a lot of uh, people that I spend a lot of time with. So it's also interesting to see who Rudy meets and makes friends with. So as I said, he he was tattooed by Phil Sparrow, Samuel Stewart. He was also tattooed a lot by George Bone, who we should also get on the show. George Bone's still working as a tattooer. He's in his 80s. He started tattooing out of his dad's like spare bedroom in the 1960s. Like literally, people used to turn up, and his mum would send them up to his room so he could tattoo them. <laughs> he was Britain's Amazing. most he was Britain's most tattooed man for a long time. He got tattooed and did no, he did tattoo Mr. Sebastian. Um, he was a but the thing about the thing about George is he just he, he could retire. He doesn't need to be getting out of bed and tattooing three days a week, but he loves it. He's obsessed with tattooing like obsessed with tattooing and I really want to meet him back. I need, oh, to, I need, I need to meet Mr. He's Bowen. so, he's such a good, he's such a good guy. Um, and, and, and when, when you, when you speak to George, that becomes really clear. And these, these people, you know, like Lau, like George, like Alex Binney, like, and I think Rudy comes in this thing, like there are people, these people just, just love it so much. And Rudy, you know, he, he's around tattooing, even though he's not a tattooer for his whole life. So he passes away, uh, what in two thousand and three? Yeah. So, so just about the time that I sort of became aware of him, but but he was he was still running, you know, co contacts and correspondence groups. He was members of piercing associations. He was also a skinhead, and so he's also this interesting crossover between kind of the the the, the t -t tattoo scene and the skinhead movement um, in lots of ways. But he's. He's clearly this guy that just just loves tattooing. So, Matt, can you clarify because uh, there there should be a distinction. Uh, there are what we recognize as skinhead. Uh, 
just like as what what we recognize as bikers and then there's the oftentimes gay appropriation if you will yeah. of that yeah. aesthetic so was he a skinhead or was he a gay man into the skinhead aesthetic well this is yeah i mean this i sort of touch upon this a little bit in in the book right where, where i'm talking about what's happening with mr sebastian in the 80s um i think the standard distinction in history in certainly with fashion history and social history has been to distinct distinguish those two groups of people quite clearly i think the crossover is a lot clear a lot messier from both directions so you have guys like nikki crane <laughs> who's the most obvious example right like organize like lead organizer for the national front on the cover of screwdriver albums um uh, really nasty horrible bastard but also gay appeared in gay porn and bounced in his spare time for gay clubs um and then and then on the other end of the spectrum you've got people like rudy who loves who was part of the skinhead scene you know who loves skinhead bands was it i think he ran a skinhead fanzine or certainly um wrote uh, i did not know that uh, well, I think I think I've certainly found correspondence, at least one letter from him in a in a Skinner magazine, um, but who also were gay. And there was you know there was a there was a club in London for gay skinheads that uh, attracted um, people. Like so, th- there were there were violent um, uh, assaults there on black patrons. It's difficult okay. to tell whether or not that was people coming in from outside or whether it was you know, white nationalist gay guys. I think that it's probably, again, it's not a clear distinctive um, grouping. So I think, I don't think, I don't think Rudy was a, Rudy wasn't, wasn't right wing as far as I can tell. I think, uh, but I think he, he certainly wasn't quite, unquote, just a guy who liked the fashion. I think he was involved in the, you know, in the music side of the scene as well and was quite proud of his identity as a skinhead aside from when, his identity I, as a gay skin. I feel like the skinhead and the gay scene really kind of reached an apex in the nineties. Yeah, and I feel like at that time, if you were to do a Venn diagram, absolutely the overlap was there, but it was a small overlap. Yeah, like I mean it, the American just, the American Nazi Party advertised in drama in the seventies. Yes, fair, fair, <laughs> fair. Um, <laughs> and and like it's the worst book I own, right? So I've got a book. Um, <laughs> I've got a book. Uh, there is a history of the Matt's, white. Matt's getting cancelled for his bookshelf. Well, no, I, honestly, it's a history of the white power music scene, and it's written by people that were involved with it. And it's called sort of, sort of pseudo intellectually presented as this, like, you know, this is history. But the the introduction that, that, that is written by the authors basically I say, absolutely hate these cons. So I'm just going to say it now. They basically sort of say, like, you know, we did nothing wrong, Gov. But there is there is yeah. letters so and in that in that they reproduce some old skinhead fanzines and and in there it's hilarious there's because there's letters from um from white power skins that are like people keep accusing me of being gay oh these these guys I can't like the the gay guy the gay the gay skinheads who are um, interviewed in various places basically say like yeah we can always tell we can always tell a gay skin. There's actually there's a book called Gay Skins, which is worth reading a, a little bit of a history of this movement. Although it, as I said, it, it's a bit paints a bit brighter line than I probably would. But um, clearly, the white power guys were really annoyed because everyone thought they were gay. Yeah. 
once again, yeah. also, uh, take it off your bingo sheet. Uh, me and Matt talk about Nazis on an episode that is completely unrelated to Nazis. <laughs> I love what's that 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 Sarah Silverman joke? They're cute when they're small, though. Why can't they say small? Yeah. Um, but like one thing I want to ask before we finish up, because I've talked to you, Matt, about this, like. You you spend so much time reading like personal correspondences that were intended to be private and intimate between people, and obviously at a time when people were discussing like very like deep secrets and things that, if were known publicly, could cause them harm. How like we briefly like read some personal stuff in some archive stuff, and I was incredibly moved by it. How did you feel, Paul? Like going through all these letters and seeing like stuff from Rudy and people he connected. And so I, I kind of, I guess in my brain, I categorize people into different categories. Um, so there's someone that's more of a public figure like Rudy Inhelder or Fakir Mushafar that their personal private lives are often blurred and of course i'll defer to like the widow like you know is this something that i'm okay, it's okay for me to talk about or not you know if there's someone that is surviving that is of concern uh then i i will you know do my best to reach out to them before i share that information where i get more sensitive is with people that were obviously living really private lives uh, such as the incredible till uh which i have a whole hour and a half presentation just on on Till, uh, also known as Tom of Cardiff. And he was incredibly, for decades, incredibly secretive, had to be. And, you know, his correspondence is talking about being married, but also talking about having same-sex relationships. Uh, so it's, it's so much harder to navigate that. I guess what I will do is, you know, so the, not not a guess. What I will do is like when I present that stuff is I begin with this. I begin with like, we are dealing with someone's live, you know, and, and how do we be respectful of this and mindful of the fact that this was someone that was living, breathing, had all these thoughts and ideas and what an incredible opportunity there is for us to explore this, but we should do it sensitively. Uh, but then I also look at people aren't static. So how did this person change? If we have that luxury, how did this person change over time? And so the incredible Till that was only ever known as Till early on in later years, well, he joins Pauline Clark's piercing uh, association of the UK and he becomes a member there and she starts using his, his first name, Tom. And then uh, this guy, Sailor Sid, who we're, we're not talking about, yet here and Jack Yaunt, who we're not talking about yet here, um, they, they start corresponding with Tom and he becomes less and less out of the closet. His wife has passed away and those are less and less concerns. So I can look at Tom in later years and go, okay, well, he wasn't, it was a different time. It was a different place. He's no longer as closeted. I don't need to be as uh, concerned about keeping his secrets, if you will. I was gonna. I was gonna say, Matt. We, we're we've got to the hour. If you wanna, yeah. <laughs> I, I I gotta go in like twenty minutes. <laughs> um, like if 
if, if you want, if you want, Matt, um, I can drop off, and if you and Paul want to keep recording, I will send you the login details. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. So, sorry, sorry to put you on a time limit. <laughs> um, work away. But I, I think that, you know, is a perfect point to wrap up what is probably going to be like part one <laughs> of two, if not three, episodes with Paul as we talk about, you know, alternative lifestyles, piercings, and just like pick the brains of probably like the two of the smartest people. Well, Rudy's Rudy's life, right, like covers, Rudy's life in the tattooing and piercing scenes covers 50 years. And it's 50 years of enormous change where he is not quite at the centre of it, but he's observing it all and excited by it and and thrilled by it right up to the end. And I think like that's probably why, you know, we've we're, we've been recording for over an hour, probably people have been listening for nearly an hour, and um and we're not even you know, we're sort of up to the sick we're up to the sixties. That's <laughs> a lot more yeah. to say. It's it but I wanna say like just not to put too fine a point on it, like not just observing, like he yeah. is the conduit. Yeah. He is the connection. He's bringing together so many people and allowing for the transmission of so many ideas. Yeah. I mean, I'm the book that I'm writing at the moment, which is you know, a very short, it's like 30, 35,000 words. And it's meant to be the kind of history of Western tattooing. But, but it's ended up being a story just because the way I think about the thing, the, the things about, the way that Europe, America, and British tattooing are intersected through quite a small number of people, and Rudy's, yeah. and Rudy's one of those people. Certainly in the post-war period, yeah. you know, yes. um, we we can we we and we've listed these name, those names already. But it's amazing how the same names keep coming up, and they're the people who just who a love tattooing, b were kind enough to be nerdy enough to keep stuff. C, C although this isn't quite Rudy's case, but C were loud enough. And he's just going to have to talk to newspapers and magazines. Although well, they really, really did my magazine to magazines. Um, and, and yeah, and, and, and who, and who were just able to be, you know, happy to be part of this communication. And that number of people is very small, surprisingly small, I think. Yeah. It surprised me how small it is. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, well, so we should leave it there, Tom, like, in the 60s, where Sailor Jerry and Lyle Tuttle are in the same club. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, uh, strange bedfellows. But, uh, Paul, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. You're, like, honestly, you're welcome back whenever you want, when, whatever oh, you, you want to talk about. And uh, if you've fun. enjoyed this episode, make sure to check out Paul's stuff online. The links are all down in the description. You know, if you like this episode and you want to hear more, we have, like, a really cool back catalog that you can go back through. And you can check us out on Patreon, where you can hear bonus episodes, hear more episodes like this, more episodes early cool shit to support cool people and if you subscribe off the 15 pound tier matt will send you a signed copy of his book directly to your house sealed with a kiss i will plus post packing plus post packing if you're not in the uk plus plus post packing (laughs) (laughs) but uh paul thank you very much for coming on matt thank you for being my co-host and it's goodbye from me bye